Hello, I'm Harry Glorickian, and this is The Harry Glorickian Show, where we explore how technology is changing everything we know about healthcare. For people with common health problems like diabetes or high blood pressure or high cholesterol, pharmaceuticals have worked wonders and extended lifespans enormously. But there's another category of people who tend to get overlooked by the drug industry, and that's patients with rare genetic disorders. By definition, rare diseases are rare, meaning they might only affect one in a thousand or one in 2,000 people. But here's the thing, if you add up all the different rare genetic disorders known to medicine, it's a very large number. My guest today, Charlene Son Rigby, says there may be as many as 10,000 separate disorders affecting small populations. And if you count everyone who has these conditions, it may add up to as many as 30 million people in the United States and 350 million people worldwide. That's a lot of people who are being underserved by the medical establishment. And Rigby is the head of a new nonprofit organization called RareX that's trying to fix that. Now, there's a lot of rare disease organizations that are looking for a cure for a specific condition. Rigby actually came to RareX from one of those, the STXBP1 Foundation which is searching for a treatment for a rare neurological condition that affects Rigby's own daughter, Juno. But RareX is a little different. It's trying to tackle a systematic problem that affects everyone with a rare disease. The problem is data. Rigby says that in the rare disease world, data collection is so inconsistent that each effort to understand and treat a specific disease feels like reinventing the wheel. For longtime listeners, that'll be a very familiar story. Time and again, I've talked with people who point out the harms of storing patient data in separate formats in separate silos, and who have new ideas for ways to break down the walls between those silos. RareX is trying to do exactly that for the rare disease world by building what Rigby calls a federated, cloud-based, cross-disorder data-sharing platform. The basic idea is to take the burden of data management off rare disease patients and their families and create a single central repository that can help accelerate drug development. I talked with Rigby about the challenges involved in that work, how it gets funded, how soon it might start to benefit patients, and what it might mean in the near future world where every child's genome is screened at birth for potential mutations that could lead to the discovery of rare medical disorders. Here's our full conversation. Charlene, welcome to the show. Thanks. Nice to be here, Harry. So I've been reading about what you guys are doing. I mean, all of it sounds super exciting. Been looking into the space for a long time from a rare disease, but many different angles of it. But can you just start off? Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got active in this world of rare disease research? Yeah, thanks for that question. So um, I've spent most of my career building scalable software solutions for analyzing big data, and that's been both in healthcare as well as enterprise software. And um, so I'm now the CEO at RareX, where we're building a platform to analyze um, rare disease data cross-disorder 
And prior to um, being at RareX, I um, was the chief business officer at a company called Fabric Genomics, where we developed artificial intelligence approaches to speed diagnosis of patients through genomics. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a considerable focus on rare disease and um, contributed to you know, projects like uh, the 100,000 Genomes Project and um, also the work that Stephen Kingsmore is doing at Rady Children's with diagnosing critically ill newborns um, in the NICU. And so when I started at Fabric, uh, my daughter Juno was 10 weeks old. She's my second child. and um, it was kind of a uh, fortuitous um, timing um, in some ways, kismet, because um, at, w- when I started at Fabric, I didn't know that she was going to start experiencing um, you know, issues with her development. But at around four months, she started missing milestones. And that started us on a three and a half year journey to find an answer to what was going on with her. And so during that uh, time, we went through many, many tests, um, including you know, genetic tests, MRIs, um, uh, all, kinds of, um, all kinds of things. And everything kept coming back as negative or inconclusive. And um, so I was working in, at a genomics company. And so I kept pushing for whole exome testing, which at that time was you know, still you know, not, uh, not readily available clinically and um, in by insurance was still considered experimental. So we were denied, you know, three times um, until we finally were able to get authorization in 2015. And so in early 2016, we got my daughter's diagnosis and she has a mutation in a gene that's involved in communication between neurons and the genes called STXBP1. And so it's very rare. 13 kids born a day somewhere in the world. Um, So thinking about Juno um, and thinking about this from a science standpoint, that it was pretty interesting that um, when she was diagnosed, because she didn't have a classic phenotype for STXBP1. So most um, kids, 90% of the kids um, have seizures um, and she um, has more of the symptoms around developmental delay, you know, low muscle tone, um, cognitive issues, and um, uh, and uh, delayed walking and motor issues. Um, and you know, this this kind of challenge around these um, atypical phenotypes, I think, is actually becoming much more common in um, it, in disease generally. So in rare disease, and also more broadly in uh, more common conditions, you know, as we're really starting to understand kind of the true breadth of patients. Um, so in terms of uh, your original question about, you know, my, my journey through rare disease. So I went on to co-found the STXBP1 Foundation um, to accelerate the development of therapies for kids like my daughter. And then um, coming to RareX was really a kind of joining of my software background with my passion for rare disease and really wanting to do something more broadly for the rare disease community. I have to tell you, like when you said three and a half years, I'm like, oh my God, like (laughs) I would be, I have so many stories. And like when I was at Applied Biosystems and, you know, we're doing all this work, I was just boggles the mind that some of these things are are not really readily available to help 
get over that diagnostic odyssey for especially parents because you're you want to, you're going to do anything to help your child. Um, I'm glad it's actually moving theoretically faster these days. I'm not sure if insurance has actually kept up, but we're, you know, on the technology side, I know we're, everybody's pushing the envelope now, but, but when we talk about rare disease and you did some of the numbers, but we hear about these rare diseases. I think a lot of people think of like, there's an N of one, right? They assume that this disease only affects a a tiny number of people, right? Maybe just one or a handful worldwide. But I mean, the fact is, if you add up all these different rare genetic diseases that exist in the human population, the number of people is actually pretty big. I mean, can you sort of put that into some sort of scale for us in, in what you've seen? Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. You know, um, rare disease is by definition rare. And so it's um, easy in some ways to be dismissive of, um, you know, of rare disease because, oh, it's only affecting, you know, a few people. And um, it's true that, you know, a single rare disease can affect a, a very small number of people, even down to the end of one case that you talked about. Um, like from a definition standpoint, so in the U.S., uh, rare disease is defined as a disease affecting fewer than uh, 200,000 Americans. And um, in Europe, in the EU, it's defined as affecting no more than one in 2,000 people. Um, so we, you know, even though, um, you know, for ultra rare or N of one diseases, we can be talking about a small number of people or, you know, like in my daughter's disorder, we can be talking about, you know, low thousands. Um, there are still thousands of rare diseases. And you know, the traditional number that we hear a lot is 7,000, so 7,000 rare diseases. Um, RareX is about to come out with some research um, that indicates that there are over 10,000 individual rare diseases. And this is really due to our growing understanding of genetics. You know, so previously mm -hmm. we might have grouped together a set of disorders based on what the symptoms were like. But now we understand that those actually are due to a different genetic etiology or you know, a different cause um, at a genetic right. level. And so um, if you aggregate all of those people up in the, you know, across those 10,000 rare diseases, you know, what we're you know, looking at is one in 10, potentially one in 10 people in the world. And so in the US, that's about 30 million people and in total, you know, 350 million people worldwide. So it's really a huge number of people. And, you know, from an impact standpoint, um, it's, you know, staggering when you look at, you know, the impact from a healthcare standpoint and, you know, from a, um, an economic standpoint. Yeah, I mean, if you can diagnose, I mean, if there is a way to treat someone, then you get to it faster and the economic impact is huge. And unfortunately, if there isn't, maybe it spurs a pharmaceutical company to, you know, start working on it or figure out a way to, to, to treat that patient better. But at least you, I always tell people like the better the diagnosis, the better the next step. I see people sometimes it seems like they're throwing a dart, you know, and they're, it's an educated guess, but it's not, you know, the accurate diagnosis that you'd like to have. So uh, how and where, when was sort of RareX born and what are you trying to do with the organization? What do you want to fix? 
So RareX was a, a pandemic baby. Um, the organization was started in early 2020, and this was, I, I just joined the organization last year, but, um, you know, it's really been you know, quite a journey um, being able to um, uh, have the, you know, launch the platform during, you know, during COVID. Um, and I know we can talk about that in a little bit, but um, the, the unsolved problem that um, you know, we are working to address is really around collecting data for rare disease. And you know, one might ask, well, you know, why is this an issue? I'll I'll give um, I'll give an example from the early days of the SGXBP1 Foundation. Uh, we had our first, we assembled our scientific advisory board and we got together for our first scientific meeting. And we were going to develop our roadmap so that that would guide our priorities uh, in terms of scientific development. And we were all very focused on therapies. So my expectation going into the meeting was we were going to talk about all the mice models we were going to build. What did we need to do in the lab? How were we going to get to that first you know, therapeutic candidate? And the number one priority that came out of that meeting was to build a prospective regulatory compliant natural history study. And so, so it was, you know, a huge learning for me because, you know, if you look at any, uh, you know, the, the kind of canonical steps in terms of drug development, it's always, you know, preclinical and then, you know, you move into clinical and what I, I think that though that kind of um, simple model misses is this foundational layer around the data that you need. You know, and the, yeah. the real kind of understanding of, you know, the symptoms and the disease progression um, that is critical to building a, uh, effective therapies, developing effective therapies. And so that's really what RareX was um, started to do was to enable the gathering of this data, the structuring of this data and enable it to be shared and to do this at scale. So cross disorder. Um, and, you know, there, there are several problems, you know, today that, um, you know, that, that make this challenging. And, you know, so maybe I can talk a little bit about that. Um, there, there are three or four of these significant challenges. So today, some of this data does exist, but it's often um, kind of trapped in data silos. So it was generated in an individual project that might have happened in academia or industry. And then the data is often really only accessible to the group that collected it. And, you know, in in rare disease where we don't have that many patients, it really makes it challenging to create a more comprehensive um, understanding and picture of the patients if that data is trapped in these individual silos. Um, another challenge that um, you know that we've seen is the lack of usable data. So um, individual studies, you know, may not include the key data that's needed to drive drug development forward. Um, you know, so some um, some of these data repositories they might either be um, uh, symptom specific, you know, so they're looking at a specific, you know, um, organ system that might have been in, of interest to that researcher. So they're an incomplete picture, mm-hmm. you know, or, um, you know, some of these repositories or these um, uh, registries were started by, you know, passionate parents. You talked about that, you know, the, the urgency that one feels as a parent, that I feel as a parent 
and you know um, the the registry may have been um, you know structured or the questions may have been structured in a way that isn't necessarily immediately usable by researchers because you know of you know the 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 fact that it was started by a parent who might not have been you know had a statistical analysis background <laughs> you right. might not have had a survey methodology background and um, you know we so th those can be challenges in terms of you know having the data be robust and usable later. Um, and then, you know, the, the other thing that can be, you know, challenging and probably is often the most challenging is especially in these very, very um, um, new uh, diseases, there's no data. And, you know, it takes quite a bit of, um, you know, funding um, to start data collection, you know, often, um, uh, often passionate parents are going around trying to get researchers interested in their disorder, but it's often that you have to have a little bit of data to get a researcher interested. And so, um, you know, so this is a, you know, a huge challenge in terms of um, implementing uh, data collection. And, you know, the other thing that kind of underlies um, this is that um, patients often are not empowered in this, you know, process. And so that, um, was a fundamental piece of the way that, you know, we've structured, um, you know, RareX and the way that we collect data and the way that we enable patients to participate in the process to power data collection. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, they make movies out of this, uh, right? People are trying to, you know, push this uh, boulder up a hill. But mm -hmm. so what are the new ideas that say RareX is bringing to the table? I mean, your organization has called like, you know, the largest data collection and federated data system and analysis platform in rare disease. So, I'd, it, it, you know, I think unpacking that statement, because it's a big statement, right, of, you know, what are you doing to improve data collection? What do you mean by federated for those people that are listening? And why is it important? And how will the platform enable better analysis of this rare disease data? Yeah, great question. From a design perspective, the one of the things that we wanted to do was make sure that the platform was cross disorder. So a lot of registries are started, um, you know, for an individual, you know, disorder. And the, you know, what we really wanted to be able to do was, you know, given that number of 10,000 diseases, how do we scale to support so many disorders to accelerate therapies? And so, a, you know, fundamental design principle was to do that cross disorder. The other piece of this is that we are focused on patient reported data. So, um, you know, the typically a participant will join the research program, uh, create an account on the, the platform, and they are either a patient or a caregiver of a patient and, um, you know, providing information on their symptoms. Um, there is a lot of other data, you know, out there in the ecosystem that could come from other regist related registries, or it could come from clinical data. It could, you know, come from you know many different um, types of studies. And so we really want to enable the aggregation of or federation of that data. So um, you asked uh, me to define that term. It really means bringing together multiple different data sets in a way that enables those data sets to be analyzed together. 
And, you know, I, I, can, I think, again, going back to this theme that for any individual rare, rare disorder, there aren't that many patients. And so right. analyzing that data in, um, you know, kind of in, in individually, we're really, you know, missing the opportunity to maximally use the data that's been contributed by rare disease patients. And, you know, I would even argue that it's a moral imperative for us to do that as a um, rare disease community, because it, we, we urgently need to move understanding of these disorders forward and um, development of therapies as well. I almost wish I could take all the companies I know doing this and like put them together. <laughs> so the end goes up for everybody. But uh, I know that there's, you know, all sorts of reasons that that doesn't happen. But, you know, when you were saying we're pulling in patient reported data, you know, the first thing, and we talk a lot about this from different groups on the show is, you know, would uh, a wearable or one of these other, you know, devices that are now available give you more granular real-time information that might be valuable to this sort of study? And I have, have you guys considered things like that? I mean, the short answer is yes, because the, you know, our desire is to really ex continue to expand the types of data that are collected. And the, I think that the nice thing about mobile devices, wearables, is that it makes it very easy, you know, to collect that data. And so, um, we have a partnership with Huma. Um, you know, they do you know work in the mobile space, and um, we're definitely continuing to evaluate um, you know where we can develop partnerships there. I mean, our goal overall is to deburden patients. If we can do that in a way that is additive to an overall body of research, then we're you know we're huge proponents of it. And I think that it's also important that we're really trying to create an open system um you know so the our partnership model is you know a very very open partnership model um in terms of who we can work with yeah i had a really extensive conversation with the head of data sciences at whoop mm -hmm. uh yesterday and you know they're pulling in somewhere between 50 and 100 megabytes of data per patient per day wow. i shouldn't say patient per individual per day mm -hmm. right I was like, that's a lot of data. <laughs> like it, and she was, you know, the kid in the candy store because they're like, she's like, we can really see what's happening with people. And you can ask questions at a scale that you couldn't ask before. Like she was saying, you know, the last, one of the things that we're working on publishing is 300,000 people. I'm like, you couldn't imagine that in, in the world of, say, a clinical trial of 300,000 people are just going to, you know, and you have all the data almost 24-7 on this person that's delivered by this device, which is sort of interesting, you know, place to be. So, you know, I know that you don't have 300,000 people in one, in one area, but it'd be interesting to have that sort of 24-7 data available um, from these kids if you could, you know, get a device that would lend itself to that. But what stage is the company at in building like the platform? And, you know, I guess the, the killer question is, is when will drug developers or other researchers, you know, be able to start using that if, and if they already are, do you have any early success stories you can share? 
Yeah. Yeah. It's really a very exciting time at RareX. So the platform launched last summer and we have over 25 communities on the platform. Um, and that it, um, those encompass several hundred participants already. So we're really starting to you know, see some exciting numbers in terms of participants. We're launching our researcher portal at the end of Q2. So um, very soon, and at that point, um, any researcher, so academic researchers, um, pharma researchers, will be able to access the data um, and be able to um, utilize you know, analytical tools to um, really interrogate the data. I'm excited that we also have launched our you know, first sponsored program, and that's with Trevere. They're supporting the homocystinuria um, community to start data collection, um, to start a registry. And we just launched that at the end of February. So I'm, I want to jump back, like just talking through some of the biggest technical challenges along the way, right? For, I mean, I know one of your goals is like interconnecting all these disparate data sources, but you know, one of the issues that always comes up is how do you clean up that, that existing data so that you can store it all the same way? And then obviously that enables somebody to then do the analytics right after that. But the biggest issue that I hear from a lot of people is, man, it takes a lot of effort to make sure that that data is cleaned up and put in the right place. Yes, the data munging. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think that that is really the, you know, a significant challenge because um, cre creating research ready data and then harmonizing data sets is a huge amount of upfront work that has to happen before you can actually do any of the um, analysis and the, the data mining. So what we have done with the um, core data that's being generated within RareX is that we have um, mapped it to data standards. So we utilize standards like the Human Phenotype Ontology, OMIM, HL7, um, so that the data that we're producing already is mapped to you know, all of these um, generally utilized standards. And then um, we would, you know, if we were working on a federation project, you know, the same thing would need to happen with these other data sets to really enable that type of integrated analysis. And, you, and you're right, it can be a very brute force <laughs> effort in terms of, you know, doing it accurately. And, you know, that's why I think that it's really important from a, um, from an industry perspective you know, to, to really start adopting, um, you know, adopting these standards and putting them into the base model, you know, for assuming, just making the assumption up front that the data is going to be, you know, federated and utilized, um, you know, downstream. I think that, um, you know, kind of traditional studies, you know, a lot of the scope was more really looked at in terms of what are we doing with the data today? And we need to be really thinking about, you know, from a lifetime perspective, you know, how is this data going to be used? Let's pause the conversation for a minute to talk about one small but important thing you can do to help keep the podcast going. And that's leave a rating and review for the show on Apple Podcasts. All you have to do is open Apple Podcast app 
on your smartphone, search for The Harry Glorickian Show and scroll down to the ratings and review section. Tap the stars to rate the show and then tap the link that says write a review to leave your comments. It'll only take 30 seconds, but you'll be doing a lot to help other listeners discover the show. And one more thing. If you like the interviews we do here on the show, I know you'll like my new book, The Future You, How Artificial Intelligence Can Help You Get Healthier, Stress Less, and Live Longer. It's a friendly and accessible tour of all the ways today's information technologies are helping us diagnose disease faster, treat them more precisely, and create personalized diet and exercise programs to prevent them in the first place. The book is now available in print and ebook formats. Just go to Amazon or Barnes and Noble and search for The Future You by Harry Glorickian. And now, back to the show. Now, if we go one step before, like getting that data, I mean, I have to imagine there's a huge political, bureaucratic or organizational challenge when it comes to who controls that data. And I think I have to assume your part of your job is convincing them to share it, right? Despite its potential as intellectual property, right? So how do you get on the phone and say, why don't you press send and shoot that over to me and, and, and so that we can take the next steps with it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it, it, this is a, a really um, significant challenge. And I think that we're in a time of, uh, of change uh, in terms of attitudes around this. And, um, you know, part of it is what's been happening in terms of, uh, you know, national programs to collect data and people are starting to see the benefit of mm-hmm. being able to um, share and really utilize these larger data sets. But, you know, the the reality today is that um, in terms of the status quo, researchers control the data. And, you know, that's because the data was generated in, you know, a specific project that might have happened, you know, in academia or in industry. And there's a challenge with alignment of incentives. So on the, you know, on the academic side, um, you know, I, I think that if one were to ask a, a researcher, do they want to hoard data? I, they don't want to hoard data. But the reality is, is that we still have this um, challenge with academic tenure and you know needing to publish or you know mm-hmm. perish in that environment, and so um, you know, researchers are I think still rightly concerned because of that paradigm that they have to write their paper and you know get their you know paper in before they can feel comfortable with ac- allowing others to access the data, and so you know something really needs to happen there um, to. Uh, to change that incentive, um, you know, system. And in pharma, interestingly, I think that, you know, that that's also an area where there has been a feeling that, you know, data is, you know, almost akin to, to intellectual property. But I think that especially in rare disease, there has been a growing kind of understanding that, um, you know, possessing natural history data is not going to, at the end of the day, enable pharma to win because they're going to win on, you know, the quality of their therapeutic pipeline and, you know, how quickly they can get those um, therapies through to a successful market approval. Um, and so what we've been, you know, really working to do is position natural history data as pre-competitive. And right. in rare disease, frankly, it's 
it's too expensive to build these data sets, um, you know, alone. They're, you know, as we scale to all of these, you know, disorders, it's it's going to become, you know, untenable to for, you know, each company to build their own data set. The thing that we need to do and what RareX has been, you know, working to do with our collaborators is to transform the way that research has been, you know, done and initiated and um, break down these barriers and just um, show that the model of building these, you know, pre-competitive collaborations, you know, can work, um, you know, both from a, you know, how does the, you know, business model work? And then, you know, how's the data shared? And so um, I think that, you know, RareX being a nonprofit um, and a, a kind of neutral third party is um, really additive in terms of building those relationships so that this, this kind of public-private partnership can, um, model can really um, you know, serve as a way to drive this type of change. Now, okay, so we've talked about industry sharing data, but I always, I mean, especially, you know, in the last maybe five to 10 years, keep thinking about, you know, how much of this comes directly or will come directly from patients, right? I mean, you know, if they have control or access to their data, they have the ability, theoretically, the ability to then share that data, right? Um, and it could be just for the research in general, as opposed to not specifically to find a cure for a specific disease. Mm -hmm. So how do you get that data or convince patients to share it? Yeah, well, I think that in, in rare disease, patients are typically highly motivated. You know, there are you know, um, many rare diseases, you know, that can, can be pretty devastating, you know, in terms of the, you know, symptoms and the disease progression. And so, um, you know, over, overall, there is a good, you know, portion of the rare disease population that is motivated to provide their data. And, you know, so what um, we, uh, you know, do there, and I think that, that your, you know, kind of your, your points about the, you know, paradigms and thinking about it, that the patients are sharing their data is really important because I think that that gets lost a lot. Um, you know, a patient, um, and I, we've, we've all signed up for some research study in our lives, you know, you, you go and you fill out a survey or you contribute a blood sample or something. Um, and, um, you know, that oftentimes the patient contributions get forgotten because it becomes part of the researcher's data set. And um, so the what we're really trying to do is turn around that kind of paradigm with um, a core principle that patients are the ones who own their data and they're contributing their data. And so we enable them to, um, through a, um, an innovative consent process, we enable them to basically say that, you know, yes, they're willing to share their data um, for these types of projects and they can change that at any time. And, you know, we really feel that that changes the paradigm and allows them to have a real seat at the table. Um, and then I wanted to also talk about, because obviously not everyone <laughs> is, you know, there is this proportion of, of, of folks who are um, um, motivated and, and trust. Um, and, and that's part of the you know, reason that they will be you know, willing to share their data. But, you know, there is also a portion of the population that might not be as motivated. And, right. you know, so it's important for us 
um, to be able to reach those populations and to build, you know, to build trust in the, you know, the approach that we're taking and the value of it in terms of really being able to drive research. And so um, patient education is an important component of our model, patient education, patient um, engagement. So we work um, directly with um, patient advocacy organizations and patient advocates to um, educate their communities on, you know, the value of data collection, how it um, really um, spurs and supports research. I think that that's an, a critical component to this as well. Well, hopefully people will listen to this podcast worldwide and may, that may spur someone to search you guys up on the web. But it, I noticed that another principle of the company is you don't sell patient data, right? Does that mean you're giving it away? And if that is true, what's the criteria of, of doing that? And do your data partners that you're giving it to have to meet certain, you know, standards? Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, this is a great question because monetization models around data are you know very very common today. Um, some companies have built you know significant valuations around you know around data monetization. Um, and from from a rarex standpoint, and you know this is part of the reason why we were started is that the you know the, the question was asked like is that the right thing you know to do especially for diseases where we're in the very early stages of understanding a disorder and so um you know i, I talked about this a little bit earlier that if you have no data getting any researcher interested is you know already then a huge challenge and so we're here really to break down barriers to advancing rare disease research and encourage um, encourage that research. And so, um, you know, I say sometimes that it's really important that we free the data. Um, so we don't sell data um, at, at RareX. And we have an open access model um, for, um, for researchers to access the data. And so there, it is, um, you know, not we open the doors and you know anybody can come you know come and access the data it's done you know in a responsible way so you know one of the key things is that um you know the the data is de-identified and so um there it is um it it is critical to do that because we want the data to be utilized for research it doesn't need to have you know, identifiable information in it to drive that research forward. Um, you know, this, the second thing is, is that researchers need to, you know, submit um, information on their project. Um, and then that's reviewed by a data access committee. And the, the idea behind this data access committee is not to slow down things. It's um, a, a streamlined and efficient process. But the idea is that, you know, they're there is a review process. Um, the researchers need to specify whether, um, you know, there's an IRB, um, uh, with whether that protocol has gone through um, a um, institutional review board um, review. And patients can opt to only have their data. Um, as an example, patients can opt to only have their data shared with um, projects that have gone through IRB review. So there's really kind of a, um, since this is uh, in many ways a two-sided platform, there's really a way that, you know, patients can, you know, actively 
um, engage in terms of who's accessing their data, and then the researchers, you know, also in terms of you know the types of projects that they're um, that they're going to put forward. Okay, so now you're giving away the data, right? Remember, I'm a venture capitalist, so you're giving away the data, right? First question somebody like me asks is, how do you pay for the operations? I mean, you're building this fairly sophisticated system that is, you know, you've got to clean the data, you've got to make it available, you're trying to talk to all these people. I mean, are you funded by, let's say, I mean, the typical stuff, grants? Is it member donations? Is it major gifts from individuals? You know, those are all the questions that that would cross my mind. Yeah, absolutely. So, frankly, it took my me some time to get my arms around this because you know my whole career has been in tech and venture-backed companies and so it um you know so i took some time to really like think about this and you know think about this scalable you know model from a scalability standpoint and um uh it, before joining um so we get our funding um you know largely through pharma and industry um and you know as well as some grants and the way that um that funding happens is it's basically platform investment. And I think that this is a really key thing from, from my perspective of thinking about, you know, the platform as, um, you know, something that is, uh, if you will, a social good, because they're investing in expanding the platform. They might invest, you know, like Trevere did it additionally to help to onboard, you know, uh, specific groups or expand our capabilities in terms of being able to gather data in a, a um, particular disease area. Um, but the funding that they're providing is um, you know, to make the you know platform and the research program you know more robust. Um, the data at the back end will be you know open in the way that you know we've we have talked about it we have a unique ability to do that and create that kind of model as a nonprofit. Um, and, and, you know, you're right that what we're doing, we're kind of blending this health tech company with, um, you know, this, um, this nonprofit, uh, nonprofit model. But, you know, I, I think that there are, you know, some good examples out there of, you know, public private partnerships that um, have been um, very successful in the long term in doing this, and you know that's the the model that we're really pursuing. I mean, this area is small. I, I feel like I've been in and around it for a long time because of you know being in and around genomics. But there's a small but sort of growing infrastructure of support for rare disease, you know, patients in the world, sort of nonprofits, NGOs, patient advocacy groups. Um, you know, there's global genes, right? There's the rare and undiagnosed network run there's the undiagnosed disease network foundation and then there's the n lorem foundation right there's so many others that i don't want to leave out right that that the long list but how does your or does your group overlap with these i mean i was reading a press release that this summer you guys will launch a collaboration with run um, and the, you know, Undiagnosed Disease Network Foundation to launch something called the Undiagnosed Data Collection Program. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you could sort of talk about what that project is about and is your real ambition to be the data infrastructure sharing platform for the entire community 
of rare disease patients and families. Yeah. Well, I love that you call it infrastructure because I think this is critical from a concept standpoint. Rare disease should not be a model where each rare disease is doing it on its own. Um, you know, that was one thing that really struck me, um, you know, thinking again about my daughter's disorder, where we were looking at ways to, you know, ladder up to that prospective <laughs> natural history study. And uh, I, you know, we were trying to do something. I talked to, uh, you know, a, a few other genetic neurodevelopmental conditions that were kind of my, um, our, our cohort, if you will. And we were all doing it in different ways. And it, it's it's such an opportunity cost to be, you know, figuring out the model new um, each time. And so, you know, these groups like, you know, Global Genes, um, amazing organization, um, actually the RareX founder, uh, Nicole Boyce, was also the founder of Global Genes. And we were, <laughs> we're uh, the SGXBP1 Foundation were, um, you know, used every single resource possible that came out of Global Genes, you know, that there's this broad, um, this really broad education and enablement that needs to happen, you know, for people who um, want to become, um, you know, rare disease advocates. And, you know, that Global Genes has, um, you know, really done that in a tremendous way for so many organizations and so many individuals. And so we, you know, partner with them in terms of, you um, and are very complementary in terms of providing that infrastructure, um, where RareX is focused on um, you know, this area of how do you accelerate research um, through data collection. Um, and then we use, it's great that you saw the announcement on the work that we're doing with RUN and um, the UDNF. Um, I'm particularly excited about this because um, RareX, we talked earlier about, you know, ultra rare diseases, about N of one diseases. Um, the reason why RareX is able to collect data across all of these disorders is that we have a fundamental assumption in the way that we collect data, which is that we don't assume that anybody does or does not have any symptoms. So we start out with a very um, high level head to toe type of set of questions that, you know, if you say yes to any of them, it leads into a more detailed um, you know, set of, of questions to collect data on particular symptoms. And so this is really ideally suited to situations where there isn't a lot of characterization around um, or understanding of the symptoms in a disorder and where you don't have a diagnosis because then what we're really enabling a, um, an individual to do is to gather robust data about their individual symptoms and disease progression that then can be utilized for research. And so um, we're very excited about you know, being able to work with and support um, uh, RUN and UDNF in um, in that effort. Um, and so, you know, do we have, you asked about ambition, <laughs> you know, um, do we have a, a goal of being the, the only data sharing platform? You know, I would say that our goal is to be, um, an incredibly robust, comprehensive cross-disorder 
platform. We believe that um, you know the way that we are approaching things really is enabling us to support you know um, all rare diseases, um, and we're really focused on deburdening patients. So we're enabling patient communities to get started very quickly, and they don't have to become you know experts in protocol development. They don't have to become experts in you know uh, creating clinical outcome assessments, etc. That you know at the same time you know the the world is large and that there are going to be groups who decide that they need specific solutions. You know, they may want to take on the role of being a principal investigator as an example. And so, um, you know, so I think that that's also the reason why federation is an important component, you know, what we're, you know, really bringing forward um, as a, as a way to bring all that data together. So again, you know, being on the venture side, right. I, you know, you can you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink, right? So you can do a lot. You can improve clinical trial readiness. You can make sure the data is better about rare disease patients and, and, it, and that it's available, right? That, but you can't force the drug discovery companies to sort of, or the drug makers to sort of develop a cure for a specific disease, right? Is that, you know, how do you think about that as part of a rare disease problem, is that is that part of the work that RareX is making? Are you making it less risky so that they are willing to take that next leap? You're right that pharma is going to be making, um, you know, I would say, rational business decisions. You know, based on you know commercial you know commercial drivers, and um, the the challenge with a lot of rare diseases is that no one knows about that individual rare disease and there isn't much data on it. And so anything that can be done to de-risk that process for a pharma company is huge in terms of um, increasing their interest or generating interest for them and then increasing their interest. And you know, those things can include um, you know, knowing that there's an activated community, you know, because if you have a clinical trial and nobody wants to you know participate in the clinical trial that's going to be a huge problem in terms of being able to get that drug through um, through an approval process um, and so rarex um, by building you know a very robust data set is able to um, de-risk that process um, in terms of that investment of tr- trying to understand what the disorder is and also trying to understand disease progression and going back to that point about activation of the community, we're also able to help um, to demonstrate the activation of the community because of the number of people participating, you know, in the um, in the data collection. I know it's not science fiction. I think it's right around the corner, hopefully. But I think isn't an ideal future where we do either whole exome or preferably whole genome on every newborn and scan for these genetic changes that are associated with rare diseases. I mean, I'm assuming that would really push this area much farther along. And if that is true, if that statement is true, how long do you think it'll take for us to get there? Wow. You're reminding me of the Gattaca movie, but um, hopefully that's not the real future for us. Um, <laughs> yeah, winding things back. So my daughter was born, uh, my daughter Juno was born in 2013. So, you know, that's nine years ago and it took three years 
for us to get a diagnosis. And, um, you know, there, that's like an entire other podcast, but I think that, you know, the, the really, you know, if we fast forward to 2022, we have groups like, um, you know, Stephen Kingsmore's group at Rady Children's where they're diagnosing newborns um, who are in the NICU in less than 24 hours. And even standard exome testing, which it took us three months to get our results, those standard um, exome testing results are now returned in less than two weeks. You can also get it faster if you um, have uh, an urgent testing. Um, and we have the tech, you know, um, Illumina has long, you know, been dominant and continues to be dominant in the, you know, clinical area, but you have these new entrants with Oxford Nanopore, um, Element, um, singular and there are others that are you know entering now and so these costs are coming down and this is um really going to be transformative in terms of becoming i do think that this is going to become standard of care and um yeah it's it's closer you know than we think i think that it's probably going to be in the next you know 10 years less than 10 years um we already have some um analogs to this uh in terms of uh, or precursors, I should say, in terms of newborn screening. And you know, so so what I think is going to happen is that genomic sequencing is is going to become a core newborn screening tool. And there app, the the interesting thing is is that there are applications not just in rare disease, but also in common conditions. And the value of genomic sequencing. So today, um, you know, five percent of um, rare diseases have a therapy, but there are, you know, right now, you know, hundreds of gene therapies that are currently in preclinical um, and clinical pipelines. So the, this picture is going to change enormously in the next five years. And so um, the, because the value of uh, uh, is going to grow because there are therapies, the other important thing is therapeutic windows. You know, so therapeutic windows are, you know, um, when we can intervene to have the most impact on a disorder. And so um, that's often when someone's young before the symptoms present or start um, or very early in that process. And so um, I think that uh, this is going to become a reality, you know, in the in the next decade. And, you know, frankly, I think it's a very exciting time. I, I have always been a big believer that knowledge is power. And um, this is this is you know one of those um, you know great situations where we have the ability to do something because we know. Yeah, I talk about some of this in my book, and there's some you know interesting stories, and it's a it's a fascinating time. And when I think back, you know, to when we first started sequencing, and people would say, "Why would you want to sequence anything?" And now it's. <laughs> It's, it's the complete opposite and the price is coming down. It's becoming easier and faster. And I mean, I, at some point, I think the price is going to be low enough between the uh, actual sequencing and then the analysis that, as my friend says, it's going to be a nothing burger. I mean, it's just going to be like, yeah, we should just do that because it gives us the information we need for the next step, which is sort of going to be interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that the that that is the the challenges that I talked about cost of sequencing. But you're right that 
you know, the analysis is still, you know, quite expensive today. And, you know, that's something that we're, you know, also going to need to improve. I mean, AI and, and you know, other, you know, the growing knowledge bases is really going to, you know, help to address that. Um, yep. And, um, but that's a huge component of it as well today. Absolutely. Yeah, I was, I'm looking at a company that in this particular area of oncology, they, they've gotten the whole genome analytics down to, about 60 bucks so it's you know it's it's coming to a point where you're like uh, why wouldn't you do that like what's stopping you from doing that um so it's been great having you great conversation um i wish you guys incredible success uh and i i'd love to keep up on how things are going with uh, the organization that'd be great harry really enjoyed it today thanks thank you That's it for this week's episode. You can find a full transcript of this episode as well as the full archive of episodes of The Harry Glorikian Show and Moneyball Medicine at our website. Go to glorikian.com and click on the tab Podcasts. I'd also like to thank our listeners for boosting The Harry Glorikian Show into the top 3% of global podcasts. If you want to be sure to get every new episode of the show automatically, Be sure to open Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player and hit follow or subscribe. Don't forget to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And we always love to hear from listeners on Twitter, where you can find me at hglorikian. Thanks for listening, stay healthy, and be sure to tune in two weeks from now for our next interview.